0: Why on earth does an omniscient God need to test someone? How did Avram really feel when he was walking with Yitzhak to the Akedah? And finally, was the very test that Avram was given a moral test? Did God cross the line of morality? These questions today on the Tanakh Talks podcast. Hi, my name is Yaakov Beasley, I'm sitting in my room in a lounge in the hills overlooking Jerusalem, and you're listening to the Tanakh Talks podcast. Today we're going to be looking at several of the issues and several of the commentators' approaches to the question of Aked Yitzchak, the sacrifice of Yitzchak, the near sacrifice of Yitzchak, going through all the opinions in Parshanut, in textual commentary, and some philosophical explorations as well. So let's get started. The first question I want to deal with today is the test. Because this is a question that everybody raises. Why a test? When I teach students, I generally have an idea beforehand exactly how they're going to perform. I've seen them day in, day out. The kids who I know who are participating will generally get 80, 90, 100. The kids who are goofing off in the back, they get their 50s, 60s, 70s. Once in a while, there's a surprise, and that's what makes the teaching fun. But for the most part, I already know. And I'm not omniscient. I don't know everything. So why does God need a test? And this is the question, first question we're going to deal with. This is the first question that we're going to deal with. So let's understand what the word test means. We normally assume tests as discovering something that is unknown. Something. It's a nice explanation, but it's not one that's shared by most of the commentators, or at least in this story for the reasons I've raised above. According to even Ezra, the word test means to show. That in fact, God wanted to show Abram's righteousness to the world. Now, even Ezra himself mocks this because, as he says, didn't the genius know that at the time that he Avram tied up his son, nobody was watching? But, in fact, this is the approach of the Rambam as well. Because, as my students pointed out very quickly, you know, everybody found out about the story eventually. Yes, it didn't happen in front of them, but we all know the story. We read it every day in prayers. We, it becomes the centerpiece of the Rosh Hashanah liturgy. So Maimonides writes in Mordevukim, section three twenty four, he says that the reason for the test is not to, as it were, see how Avram will perform. God knew this already, but rather to make known to the world how great Avram is, how wholeheartedly he performed his commandment despite the tremendous personal cost, with no thought of reward, in fact he was going to lose the greatest thing in the world that he owned, his own son. And the suggestion is that the word nisah to test comes from the word Nase, a banner to raise up high. Ramban, Nachmanides, has a very different approach. And I think a lot of what he says can be found in day-to-day life. He differentiates between the potential and the actual. I may be very good, naturally, with skills like shooting a basketball, but unless I go out and practice on the court and take 100 free throw shots, I'm not going to become better. I'm not going to reach my potential. Ramban says this is true in spiritual matters as well. Avram had all this greatness inside of him, but he had to bring it out to the potential. The world, it was not to, as it were to prove the world that Avram was capable of this, but Avram, des- who deserved all the reward in the world, had to perform this act to demonstrate to possibly to Avram himself, possibly to others, the levels of righteousness and obedience that Avram was willing to perform. It's interesting that two of our commentators seem to imply that this is a form of punishment. Rashi and his grandson, Ram- Rashbam. Both of them comment on the first words of the text. It was after these things. Ma'ela. Well, things generally fall in a chronological order unless I'm told differently. Why mention that this story occurred right after the previous one? Isn't that what I would expect? So, because of those extra words, Rashi brings the following midrash. Did made a party when he weaned Yitzchak? Guests, and one can imagine balloons and cakes and all sorts of fun things. And yet, according to the Midrash, Rashi quote, quoting the Talmud in Sanhedrin eighty nine b, Achar devarim, and it's interesting. He's translating the word devarim here, not after these things, but after these words, as it were, of Satan, the accusing angel. That, like in the story of Job, the Satan went to God and said, "Of every feast that Avraham made, he did not sacrifice you not one bull or not one ram." As it were, Avraham made a mistake. You're throwing a party. You have to give some appreciation, some notice. You have to invite God to the party. You have to demonstrate the thanks that you have for him through a sacrifice, through a korban. God said to the Satan, does he do anything but for his son? Meaning, but if I would say to him, sacrifice him before me, he would not withhold him. Which is really a very, very interesting statement. Meaning that God, as it were, says, let me prove to you how loyal Avram is. This is why I'm not worried about him not bringing a korban. Rashi brings another opinion. After the words of Yishmael, who is boasting that Yitzchak was, as it were, performed a lesser mitzvah. Because whereas Yitzchak got the Brit Milah at the age of 8, Yishmael got the Brit Milah at the age of 13. But not 13 day; it was 13 years. Think you're better me because of one limb? If God asked me to sacrifice my entire self, I'd be willing to do so. The Rashbam gives another fascinating suggestion why the account of the Kedah occurs afterwards after these things. The previous story is Avraham's peace agreement with Avimelech and Fichol, ...of the police team. He agrees to a peace agreement, a non-aggression agreement... ...and to leave them in where they live. According to the Midrash of Rashbam quotes... ...Amar lo Baruch the Holy One blessed be he said to Avram... ...I told you, don't be afraid of them. And yet you go and give away parts of the land of Israel... ...for a peace agreement. You should know that because of this... I will ha- ...this will cost you the blood of your son as it were. It's a very powerful and strong critique of Avram's behavior... Although the way the text is set up, I have a hard time seeing the text as a punishment for any previous action. Rather, this is, as was said previously, either to demonstrate Abraham's righteousness to the nations, or perhaps to, or perhaps to bring out of, or perhaps to bring latent potential out into actualization, so that Avraham can be the greatest Abraham that he can be. The next question that we should really ask when dealing with the question of the Akedah is, what did Abraham feel? There is a famous Midrash that as Avram took Yitzchak to the place where he would offer him, remember he's never told where it is, although it is Har HaMoriya, that the Satan appeared to him like a river, meaning he came to a river, and as he tried to cross the river, the river became higher and higher and higher. And the HaLevot, Zichron Livracha, she points out correctly that this entire Midrash and all these Midrashim of the Satan arguing with Abraham, sometimes at the face of a an old man, sometimes the face of a young boy. What they're meant to symbolize is, in fact, it's a metaphorical representation of Abraham's wrestling with himself. What is he doing? This goes against everything that he has been taught. There's another approach which I found most fascinating that my students had never heard of, and this is the approach of Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, the Rav. And the Rav, of course, emphasizes the idea that the Akedah, evokes the ultimate feeling of sacrifice and suffering that accompanies the religious experience. And my guys had never heard this before in class. They were blown away by this concept because they've always been told, do this commandment, do this mitzvah, and it will be good for you. You'll enjoy it. You'll have a great life. Really, it's a sort of religious pharmaceutical approach, which says if you just take these, you'll be, feel better in the morning. Rav Soloveitchik writes that he recoils from all talk that goes round and round a single topic. The observance of mitzvot is beneficial for digestion, sound sleep, family harmony, and social position. As it were, he's quoting the conservative arguments that were made during the 50s and 40s, why you should still keep mitzvot anyways. And he then goes on in this very, very clear, stark contrast, the religious act is fundamentally an experience of suffering. When man meets God, God demands self-sacrifice. That's it expresses itself in struggle with his primitive passions and breaking his will, in accepting a transcendental burden, in giving up exaggerated carnal desire. In his urine, offer your sacrifice. This is the fundamental command given the man of religion. The chosen of nation, from the moment that they revealed God, occupied themselves in a continual act of sacrifice. His proof text, of course, is Abraham. God says to Abraham, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. I demand of you the greatest sacrifice. I want your son who is your only son. Do not fool yourself to think that after you obey me, I will give you another son in place of Yitzhak. When Yitzhak will be slaughtered on the altar, you will remain alone and childless. All your life you will think about him. It's very, very dramatic, as the Rav was wont to be. And therefore, says the Rav, this is meant to be an experience of suffering, of sacrifice, because this is what the religious person... Experience entails. And if you should ask, however, well, how is Avram's behavior different than the baby? Be- and if you were to ask the simple question, well, how is Avram's behavior in any way quanti- qualitatively or quantitatively different than any other parent that has sacrificed a child among the pagans over the centuries? Rav Yitzchak, Rav Chaim Navon, in his wonderful series on the theological issues of the Sefer Brashid, writes the beautiful, beautiful approach. And he says, what is the true difference between Abraham's approach and all the others who sacrifice their children? It should be noted that when Avram offers up Yitzchak, he doesn't just offer up his son. He offers up his entire faith system, his values, his understanding of the world. He offers up his social position. Until now, he was an honorable man both his own eyes and the eyes of others. From now on, he will be a murderer. Until, up until now, he believed that God was a God of love. And now this is shattered in pieces. God gave him a promise, you will have many children and they will f- lead the world. But that he was ready to forgo. Avraham is unlike other martyrs. Because martyrs, when they die, they know that their death has meaning. What Avraham is giving up is meaning itself. But how opposite this approach is the approach of Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, the first chief rabbi of Israel? In his commentator, in his commentary on the Sidur, where the story of the Akedah appears, where the story of the sacrifice of Isaac appears, he gives a very interesting and fascinating commentary on the Akedah. I'm not going to go into everything, but there's one line there that's fascinating. It says that Abraham woke up early in the morning to do God's command. And the previous commentators, Rashi among them, praise Avram, look how a great man acts. He's given command, he gets up early with energy, and he does what he's told to do. Rav Kook points out something very different. Forget the fact that he is, wakes up early. Forget the fact that he wakes up early. How about the fact that he was able to sleep? God commands you to kill your son, your only son, the one that you love. And yet, you can sleep so soundly and peacefully and calmly? According to Rav Cook's understanding of what a righteous person should be, it's not the turmoil and the dialectic tension and the existential anguish that accompanies Rabbi Soloveitchik's Avraham. Rather, it's a man who believes, with, who acts with serenity and calmness and is able to perform the commandments, knowing that even if he has questions, God will be there to answer them. It's such a fascinating approach. Is it moral? That's a separate question. And it's worth thinking about how we would feel under under similar circumstances. And it's worth thinking about how we would feel under similar circumstances. Finally, the question about whether or not God's command was moral, which has to be asked. To a large extent, it parallels the famous question in Plato's dialogue, *Euthyphro*, where he asks, he phrases the question as follows: Do the gods command actions which are holy because they are holy? Or are these actions holy good because God's commanded? Meaning, is there an independent goodness, is there an independent morality outside of God's command? If God commanded to give the ceda, then it must be holy. Or is there an independent level of what is holy and God simply commands against it? Now, there are thinkers, of course, and there's many thinkers, and most people who, um, I think, don't approach this with depth immediately turn to the default position. If God said so, it must be good because God is good and therefore he said it. I quote from here. I Let me quote from the Yesh Kadosh, the P.S. Rebbe, who Zichron you know, who your site was last week, when he died in the ghetto, in Navorsha, he writes as follows in Eish Kadosh, it's in page 68 in the Eish Kadosh. The nations of the world, even the best of them, think truth exists independently, and God commands the truth because in and of itself it's true. But this is in contrast of Israel, he states, because Jews say, you are the God of truth, may he be blessed, and in truth there's no truth outside of him. All the truth in the world is true only because God so commanded and will. Since he is truth, this too is truth. One is forbidden to steal because God so commanded. And when God commands our father Abraham to bind up his son Isaac, it was the truth, i.e. the moral thing to do to bind him. And had he not said to him afterwards, do nothing to him, it would been moral to kill him as well. The Eish Kadosh comes clearly on the side that there is no independent morality, there is no independent ethic, but God, in fact, is the one who decides this is right, this is wrong, and you have to live accordingly to his commandments, irrespective of what you may think is right and wrong. But that doesn't seem to square, however, with the way that the Torah, the Bible, presents ethics. In fact, in this week's Parsha, we have a perfect Example of Avram himself telling God, Hashofet kola arts lo yasemishbat, does not a just the just judge of all the world does not the judge of all the world does he not do justice? The implication, of course, is that God is being held accountable to an independent standard of right and wrong, and according to Avram, God is found wanting. That's a very powerful accusation. So it may be as Rav Solavit. It may be the way Rav Kook portrays it. Avram entertained these doubts about God's morality. And as he puts it, quoting the line in the prayer, the last of the Brights of Rabbi Ishmael, that we say in the morning, when two verses contradict each other, we continue until we find the third that releases the contradiction. And so too, Avram lived with this doubt But he doesn't try to resolve it prematurely. That's how you get to dogma, when you have two truthfully good ideas. And Avraham said, I will live with this until God himself chooses to resolve it. A different approach is given by Rabbi Ezra Bick, who says something very, um, I think it's very clever, because it maintains both of the ideas that we've just said above. Avraham recognizes the contradiction between the two systems. Yet he gives priority to God's command over morality, says Rabbi Bick. But he chooses to follow God's word, not because that he says God is immoral, but God's command overrides morality. Avram does, still gives primacy to morality, but he says, at this point in time, I'm not sure what morality is, and I will wait for God to reveal it. In Rabbi Bick's words, our Abraham, as opposed to Kierkegaard's knight of faith who, as it were, the theological suspension of the ethical, who says, you know, God's command goes over the ethical command. Our Abraham does not sacrifice morality, but only his understanding of morality. Abraham has to reconcile himself to his inability to understand on his own what is good and what is evil, but he is not forced because of God's command to act against what is good and moral. So we've dealt with several of the issues With the Akedah, we've dealt with the question of what the test was. How did Avram feel? Was he tortured? Was he calm and serene? Was God moral? It's a wonderful text that raises a lot of questions and worth reading again and again and again this week and the next. Until our next podcast, I wish everybody a Shabbat Shalom from Israel. You've been listening to Tanakh Sox. You've been listening to the Tanakh Talks Podcast.